0: Welcome to year two of black and gold as we continue to tell the story of us, our victories, our defeats, our hopes, our concerns, our memories, our dreams. See, these stories are much bigger than just us. They serve as markers on the path, as a guiding light in the darkness, as an oasis of wisdom. Our past, our present our future. So kick back and listen as we share our truth. Let's begin. Orville Springs has always lived life on his own terms, marching to the beat of his own drummer. But don't let me tell you, here are the words he wrote when he was a young man in the late 1950s at the University of Colorado. A poem entitled, Ode to Nonconformity. Why do you worry what people think about what you do and say? Is the weak constitution or the fear of man's constant boo? Is a man still a man when he joins with the rest? Or as in the Aeneid, women beating their breasts. Afraid of the fate of life's uncertainty and seemingly afraid of the chance to be free. I pity those men who by custom are feathered, attached to the rock and chained to the coward. Victims of indulgence by weakness overpowered. So I analyze briefly my thoughts just a bit and make your decision to be a nonconformist. My friends, reading from his autobiography, please welcome Mr. Orville Springs.
1: Remember when the autobiography of the poet, Orville Springs. The early days. The fact that we live in a free society means that conflict is inevitable. Whereas in a controlled society, limits are imposed which stifle dissent and suppress conflict and its expression. A byproduct of freedom is conflict resolution and the redress of grievances. Oppression is the result of rigid controls as by totalitarian regimes. I am a product of the diversity which is the United States of America, as guaranteed by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, a Denver native and a man of God. My story begins humbly enough during World War II on March 30, 1941. Tradition dictates that my parents work to support their firstborn child. My father was inducted into the United States Army, and my mother took a job in a munitions plant. As fate would have it, she worked with my future mother-in-law, Beulah Adams, founder and sponsor of the Escalade Drill Team. Denver was a cow town. The Negro community pioneered and persevered. My maternal grandmother, Murtis Davis, owned Bill's Diner on Welton Street in Five Points near Benny Hooper's, and the famed rossonian which featured the jazz greats and show business legends of the era my her mother molly white jackson worked with emily griffith the founder of opportunity school mrs white or mrs jackson as she was known mr white was her first husband who was my biological grandfather died in 1933 and then she remarried a spanish-american war veteran, who I knew as grandpa. Mrs. Jackson, to her friends and neighbors, was Grandpa grandma to family. A widow, she married Thomas Jackson, a Spanish-American war veteran. William Springs, my paternal grandfather, was a retired teamster, a widower, and the father of 11 children. His son, Orville C. Springs, my father, was the youngest child living when Eugene died. Dad's mother, Willie May, died sometime after Eugene was born. Our family genealogy is currently being written by Robert Cook, a second cousin. We are a healthy mixture of black, white, and Indian heritage, a veritable melting pot of American ethnic and racial tensions, slavery, colonialism, and genocide. The drama, which is my life, is a sequel to the unrest and divisions spawned on the North American continent. Janice Adair Davis and Orville Clyde Springs were united in holy matrimony and conceived a child. Named for my dad, I am Orville Springs. My birth was the outcome of a steady faith in God, the blessed assurance that our Lord Jesus Christ would lift the burden of sin and oppression from our weary bones. Grandma would work in the house and in the yard singing deeper, deeper in the love of Jesus daily let me grow. Higher, higher in the school of wisdom, moral grace to know. By the time I entered kindergarten, I was reading the Bible. I was four years old, I identified with the boy Jesus. I loved the way he spoke up to the elders and turned tables in the temple. On Thursday afternoons after school, I would go to grandma's house, to read the Bible with Reverend Perkins and the church members. Imagine a child born to be king. What a Friend We Have in Jesus was my favorite song. Mother taught me everything she knew. She tried to make me smart. As the family increased in size, she didn't have as much time to tutor the rest of the children. I enjoyed teaching and drilling my siblings in reading, writing, and arithmetic. One Sunday evening, I fell asleep on the couch. This is after CU and everything else. Mm -hmm. Uh, While watching 60 Minutes, I woke at the sound of my name and I heard the voice of Mike Wallace then on CBS News reporting in his story, Justice in a Company Town. Fort Mill, population 4,000, is one of a half dozen towns in South Carolina dominated by the giant factories of Springs Industries. Springs employs 23,000 workers and 39 plants. And if you've ever bought Spring Maid or Bill Blast or Wamsata sheets, then you have contributed to their annual sales of 7, $1.7 billion. That's right, billion dollars. I promptly called my dad on the telephone and told him to change the channel on his television set. I always dreamed that we had a ton of money in our family. Dad said, keep on dreaming. Grandpa's roots began in Kansas City, Missouri, the only child of a black mother and a mulatto father. His father was the son of a wealthy white man by the name of Springs. Although Bill's grandfather had never married, he had a keen interest in the future of his only grandson and made many attempts to direct him to a brighter future. In early days, he sent Bill to New York to learn banking, the family business. When that was not successful, he tried to get him involved with teletype. But Bill was having none of this. You see, Bill Springs was an adventurer. He soon became interested in seeing cowboys and Indians. That desire brought him to Colorado in 1889 at the age of 15. He later recounted that the only Indians he saw were in parades. Bill was later charged with the crime and put in jail. His mother, Letty, came to Denver to get him out and took him back to Kansas City, where she helped him get established in the house cleaning business. At the age of 18 in 1892, Bill returned to the Colorado Springs area and was involved with digging for gold, one of the biggest gold strikes in Colorado. The mine was discovered by General William Palmer, It seems that Bill and a young friend who had run away with him helped Mr. Palmer dig from time to time with something interesting to do. As Bill told it, he was there when they loaded up the boxcars with gold and placed locks on them. Bill also spent time as a bartender in Leadville in some of the most famous whorehouses of the time. Back in Denver, Bill worked as a driver for Henry Wagner and son, hauling coal and building supplies with his team of horses and a wagon. According to the Denver City Directory 1910, he lived at 3062 Walnut Street and was listed as colored. Finally, he worked for the Rio Grande Railroad, cleaning rail cars. Is that what is so important about Bill Springs? No, not by a long shot. Bill's personality, principles, and love of his family is what made Bill stand head and shoulders above many. In these times of great austerity for many, and especially for Black members of our society, Bill refused to contest the will left by his grandfather, who willed Bill a single dollar. In spite of Bill's aunts and uncles' encouragement to protest the will, he refused, saying, if he didn't want me to have it, I don't want it. Considering that there were millions of dollars at stake, this is a very important statement about Bill's principles and those those he worked at instilling in his family behold children are a heritage from the lord the fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior for the children of one's youth Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. 1967 was a turning point. I was invited to see a play written by Rudolph Corky Gonzalez, the revolutionist. Corky was the president and director of the Crusade for Justice, a Chicano civil rights organization. Listed among his credits, he was also a national AAU boxing champion and professional boxer. He grew up with my father and uncles. They respected and admired one another. 20 years later, I was walking down the alley one afternoon with my friend and we discovered I am Joaquin, Corky's epic poem, fire damaged and trashed behind the former headquarters of the crusade at 16th and Downing. The building was boarded up, fire marshals suspected the fire had been set by transients who slept in the abandoned building. One evening while watching the local news, a friend called to tell me that the crusade building was engulfed in flame. I witnessed the devastation simultaneously on television. As soon as I went outside, I could smell the black smoke. A crowd had already gathered and I walked on the periphery to avoid the crush of people and smoke that was constantly shifting direction from the wind currents. It took a day to put out the blaze and a night to patrol the embers that crackled amidst the rubble. The site was raised and an announcement was made that the United States Post Office was planning to build there. The land lay fallow for a year before the post office was built. During the interim, I noticed flyers up and down Colfax and throughout the neighborhood advertising a three-day tent meeting, services held morning and evenings. Through the church grapevine, I heard that this was the first time in over 20 years that the city had issued a permit for a tent meeting on a vacant lot. I attended every session and gave my testimony on the last night. I was nervous speaking before such a large assembly and forgot the words to didn't my Lord deliver, what's the man's name, Daniel. The choir joined me on the beat. The Lord delivered me that night and I met a young street preacher named Arnold Hamilton Maloney, the fourth, who ministered to me. We talked and I felt a kinship with him. Remarkably, he was a resident at Clayton College for boys after his mother died while he was still a teenager. I told him that I had worked at Clayton for three years and we talked into the night about the Lord and our memories of Clayton College. As fate would have it, I found the name Arnold Hamilton Maloney in a library book about the Garvey movement founded by Marcus Garvey. I knew that Arnold was interested in his roots and we spent one afternoon at the library making photocopies. The excerpt of the speech by Arnold Hamilton Maloney was published in The Negro World, June 3, 1922, and was delivered in Liberty Hall, the 30th of May, 1922. A baby sister, Jennifer Springs, was born prematurely and lived on this earth two days. I remember the keen disappointment and heartbreak of losing a child. Mama sought my opinion, asked, Asking if I wanted a baby brother or a sister, I preferred a baby sister, but the ways of the stork were beyond my comprehension. A brother Richard Clyde springs was born on December 18 1943 at Denver general hospital what a Christmas present. When mama brought Richard home from the hospital, she allowed me to hold him in my arms and I didn't want to let go Richard was mine and nobody could tell me any different. I was in the stage known as the Terrible Twos, and a classy confrontation ensued, a veritable battle of wills straight out of the Wild West. Grandpa Springs had come West during the gold rush to mine for gold. Claim jumping was common on the new frontier, and many a gunslinger settled the score with a fist to the jaw or a Colt 45. I felt that I was the rightful owner of the child, it was Christmas, and Richard was my brother, my Trojan horse. My joy turned to tears that Helen of Troy, my mother, had tricked me, breaking through my defenses, allowing the Greek army to burn and pillage my ancestral home. This is one of the times a boy needs his daddy. I imagine the daddy said, "Sis on you, pistol. You ain't so muck and futch." That settled it. Richard has been his own man ever since. Thank you, father. Thank you, mother. Everybody makes mistakes, little honey child, and gets to feeling sad and blue every little while. But don't you get downhearted, it sure don't pay. I likes you and I thinks of you every blessed day. It brings back memories. Every time I pass the vacant lot that used to be the Stubbs Apartments at 2914 Downing Street, The still remains of yesterday and yesteryear leveled to the ground. Memory fades and I attempt to reconstruct the porch approximately 45 by 60 inches, leading down a flight of stairs to the concrete garden below. The yard is hedged with bushes, a white lawn, trees I can climb into and survey the earth below and the heavens above. Richard barely two years old and sunny that's me are playing a game of tag Richard is trying to catch me as we race around the living room sunny bounds out the door to the porch and ducks around the corner Richard follows. He runs straight ahead falling underneath the banister and lands on the hard concrete below he busted his gum everybody's screaming. Mama glowers, racing down the long flight of stairs. My baby, she shrieks. I stand transfixed as she picks Richard up. She drives away, telling me to stay home until she gets back. Hours pass and a storm is brewing in the heavens. Heavy drops of rain, thunder and streaks of lightning. The sun disappears from the sky. I am deathly afraid. I keep watching and waiting for Mama to drive up. I rehearse. I didn't do it. Mama, I didn't make the baby fall. In grief, I wander down the street. I decide to go to see the nice lady who always gives me candy. The baby, Richard, fell off the porch. Mama took him to the hospital. I don't know when she'll be back. She's been gone a long time. I narrated the sad sequence of events. Sonny boy, you better get back in that house. You're soaking wet and we'll catch your death of pneumonia. The lightning's going to strike you if you've been a bad boy. She continues to mutter and slams the door. The thunder rolls. It is dark, and Mama and Richard return from the hospital and find me fast asleep under the bed. My face is tear-stained. I'm four years old. Mama puts us to bed, kissing us goodnight. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Bless Mama and Daddy. Bless Grandma and Nina. Bless Richard and the doctor who made him well. Bless everybody in the world. Amen. While I was in kindergarten, my mother informed me that she was going to have a baby soon. that my father was going to take care of Richard and me while she was in the hospital. I decided to play Three Little Pigs. I packed my brother Richard up and took him to school with me, even though he was under age. To my dismay, the school was closed because it was Armistice Day, now Memorial Day. Richard and I went to Aunt Lula's, Odessa's sister. Everything went well until Aunt Lula said it was time to take a nap. Daddy hadn't arrived yet, so I refused to take a nap. I ran away and went to grandma's house around the corner. It was raining and grandma wasn't home. I felt betrayed until I found out that grandma had gone to the cemetery to decorate graves, which was her custom. Otto, Butch's cousin, consoled me when they found me crying at grandma's back door in the rain. He persuaded me to come with them by promising to give me a toy. He made me a guitar out of a cigar box. It made me feel important and assuaged my grief. Jerome Edwards Springs was born on May 28th. In first grade, I developed a crush on the physical education teacher who supervised the playground during lunch period and recess. My best friend, Richard Orange White, dared me to kiss her. While the teacher was sitting on a little stool, I ran over and kissed her. In panic, I raced to the slide, slid down and disappeared among the other children. Later that day, Richard and I had a laughing fit in gym class and we were called to the front of the room. Every time we looked at each other, we broke out in laughter. That PE teacher smacked me across the face and gave me a bloody nose. I kept it a secret and didn't tell my mother. What's the child to do? The teacher was a white woman, as were most of my teachers. Occasionally the teacher would be a white man I never had a Black teacher or instructor, period. Not even at the University of Colorado in Boulder, or Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism in New York City. Typically, I had a normal childhood, including my share of fights with my brother, Richard. I was idealistic and romantic, a la John Wayne, Hopalon Cassidy, Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, and the Lone Ranger. I had measles, mumps, and chicken pox. I raised rabbits and grew Irish potatoes in the backyard for 4-H Club. I sold white cloverine brand sab and I have a paper route for three years. Football, baseball, basketball, tennis, track and field events rounded out my athletic career. Richard, Jerry, Mike, Jeannie, and Angie excelled in athletics. Jeannie played on the girls' basketball team and my brothers each won outstanding athlete awards. At Mariah Mitchell Elementary School, I played the cuckoo clock in the Christmas pageant. When the family moved from the Stebb's apartment at 29th and Downing across from Juvenile Hall, I entered Columbine Elementary. My fondest memory was narrating the history of the Rocky Mountain News from memory to the sixth grade class play. That was a good year because I got six A's and two B's on my report card. I worked for extra credit and was the chairman of the science nook. No matter how long I watched a variety of cocoons, they never metamorphosed into butterflies. My teachers were Miss Wren and Mr. Hare. I believe that I was challenged in the fifth grade by Miss Harriet Put- Putnam, who was the first cousin to the famed Aviatrix Amelia Earhart. Miss Putnam wore thick glasses, and I always had the feeling that she couldn't see me. I got good grades in her class, but it took many frustrating years to disabuse myself of her notions of puppernickel bread, European vacations, and Dr. Doolittle. Anyway, hers was the last class of the day, and she was forgetful and confused by the bell, allowing us to go home early. Frank, my stepfather, had a profound effect on my life at this time. I was anxious to please him and it was reflected in my school grades i felt liberated from the responsibility of caring for my brothers and sister knowing that there was a man in the house my passion for books was rewarded and i earned recognition reading the required number of books during summer vacation i used the warren branch library at 34th and high mrs robinson the librarian came to Columbine and presented awards in the fall. I cut my teeth on Black Beauty, East of the Sun, West of the Moon, and Miss Putnam's favorite, The Tales of Dr. Doolittle. Divorce is never easy. Its chilling effects weigh heavily at family gatherings and someone is missing, but love maintains us even in these perilous times. The war ended and my parents went their separate ways. Dad married Odessa Keys, who had two children from a previous marriage. Mama married Frank A. Ingram, her childhood sweetheart, who fathered Michael Angelo, Jeannie Adair, and Frank Angelus Ingram. Pretty soon we were one big happy family again. We visited Dad and Odessa weekly. Dad would cut her hair, and Odessa fixed my favorite strawberry shortcake. Odessa treated Dad's children like her own. Dad worked as a heavy equipment operator and helped to pave Colorado's scenic highways. He taught us to swim at City Park, swimming pool, and he took us hunting and fishing. I got a 410 shotgun when I was 12 years old. I shot a cottontail rabbit, but the 410 wasn't powerful enough to kill it. I was in the field with Butch, my stepbrother, so we chased it down and clubbed it to death with the butt of the rifle. I never killed another animal. While fishing at the lake, I sang opera. Everybody claimed that I scared the fish away, but I kept on catching crappie, catfish, bass, and carp. Reading was my hobby. As an adult, I learned that my grandmother, Nina, had chastised my mother for always having her head stuck in a book. Mama understood the value of an education. She was a straight-A student. She matriculated at Whittier Cole Junior High, Emmanuel High School. In our household, most questions of fact were resolved by looking up the correct answer in a book. We grew up disciplined and understood our place in the chain of command. The children washed the dishes after family meals, watered the lawn, and shoveled snow. After dinner, Frank encouraged our creative side. He drew cartoons and did magic tricks. At parties with friends, he and Mama harmonized to such tunes as Sweet Adeline and down by the Old Mill Stream. Before long, my brothers and I were practicing and getting our routines down pat while we did the dishes, then break out, sounding like the Jackson 5 and entertaining our parents. From the day I hit a dime behind the fence post, and Mama asked me where was her chain from the gym market. I perceived that Mama had powers that were godlike. Santa Claus sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Reluctantly, I led her to the hidden stash, which I planned to use to buy some candy. I promised that I would never do it again. I didn't. And the day, the entire student body at Mariah Mitchell Grammar School including teachers, followed, rather chased me home from school because I had opened my mouth and outfelt a volume of words that were aimed with effect at the entire assemblage. Outraged, they pursued me with the ferocity of children who wanted to even a score. Mama came out on the porch to see what was the commotion. My accusers yelled threats and demanded that Mama beat my butt because I had called them bad names. Sonny, did you call them those names, Mama asked. No, Mama. I lied and assumed a posture not of righteous indignation, but angelic repose. That settled it. And aside from a few angry gestures and threats, the crowd disappeared. Mama promised to beat me black and blue. My tormentors roared with approval. Solomon in all his wisdom was never appreciated as much as I appreciated my mother that day. I got a taste of my own medicine. She didn't beat me or scold me, but whispered in a conspiratorial tone, good. My loyalties extended to everyone I liked or loved. I would wait hours on end for someone to play with me on the vacant lot at the hole, even though it got lonely because I finished my chores so I could go outdoors. My friends never seemed to finish their duties at home, so I had to snatch my pleasures where I could find them. I daydreamed about a future in the sky beyond the clouds. I thought of myself as some sort of mascot. I wanted to be liked by everyone, despite race, color, age, or gender. My instincts were good for perceiving trouble, and I could disappear without a trace when it was necessary. I didn't like to fight, but Mama didn't let me run away from a fight. We even fought together against a common foe. Hit him, Mama said. I looked at her and I looked at the boy my size who tried to bully me whenever I had to go to Frank's Market, one block and one traffic light away from home. I doubled my fist and hit him in the chest. We were about eight years old. His teenage sister agreed to hold him, her bad brother, so I could teach him a lesson. Harder, I said, hit him harder, Mama said, standing at ringside while the defenseless child cried in anger as I repeatedly hit him harder each time. Ever the cautious optimist, I restrained myself and decided not to give him my knockout punch. Suddenly, stunned by a sharp slap across my face, I wrestled with the demons in my brain. Who hit me? Where did it come from? I was in a daze. The boy's sister slapped me and took off running on her roller skates. Mama went after her and had her down on the ground near the curb outside juvenile hall, the juvenile detention center. The boy ran home and got his mother. Mama swept the street with Janice, his sister, and took me home. Together we stood at the door of our apartment as their mother tried to cajole my mother to come out and talk it over. I know your mother, Janice Adair. Mama wasn't thinking about opening the door to talk to that woman, and they left outboxed and out of luck. Luckily, I managed to avoid all of them from that day forward. In fact, I never saw them again, and we continued to live in that apartment for another whole year. By then, I was more than eager to move to another house and another school. My brother, Richard, never let me forget that fight. We picked up the pace and i'm sure we fought and worked every day to be free men someday one advantage of having young parents when you're growing up is the fact that they are able to identify with your want and need to assert your independence on the other hand they may be fearful for your future as a result of their own experience as youngsters older parents in the neighborhood were often arbitrary denying their children the opportunity to participate in functions designed for their age group. My parents were young themselves and encouraged me to do things and go places with their permission provided I took care of my responsibilities in a responsible manner. When I entered Smiley Junior High, I was allowed to attend the Teen Canteen at Hootier Grammar School, despite the fact that I skipped a grade and was younger than the average student in my class. I felt that it was an appropriate outlet for a child like myself and I had no qualms about attending the Friday night dances. I'd loved to dance and met a variety of girls in that social setting week after week. I had the feeling that I was establishing a new identity in this milieu where I was literally unknown. I shed the nerd image I cultivated as a student in an integrated school where blacks were a handful in an overwhelmingly white environment. On Friday nights, I was a high class cat. I selected my wardrobe with care. My taste was conservative, suit and tie with a liberal dose of aqua velvet on the peach buzz. I was so proud of. I was expected home at a reasonable hour and with one exception, I always got home on time. Elohim convinced me that I was a man and I stayed at her home way past midnight. She arranged a ride for me. While the driver drove slowly up High Street, I observed a strange assortment of people gathered in the street and around the multifamily housing units that were built on the vacant lot. Fearing my mother's reaction at my arriving home so early in the morning, I was doubly frightened by the scourge of drugs that had moved into the neighborhood. I rang the doorbell, and my mother opened the door. I cautioned her to keep her voice down because I had seen a bunch of, quote, drug addicts down the street. Mama was outraged at my impertinence, demanding answers as to my whereabouts. Pull your pants down, she insisted. I followed her orders and stood shamefaced with my pants down around my ankles. Mama noticed a sore on my thigh and asked me how I got it. It was useless to explain during this awkward age of adolescence that I had scratched an itch that refused to heal. As soon as the scab would form, it itched, and I scratched it raw again. My morning light had eased my guilty conscience. I told my school chums about the good times I had had, and after much cajoling, they persuaded their parents to let them attend the dances. For the most part, I traveled alone. I was in a class by myself, confident of my abilities and self-assured as I excelled socially and academically. I was a good boy and I ran with the boys that attended Sunday school regularly. My sexual fantasies were encouraged by the lyrics of songs on the hit parade and the photographs of beautiful women in Ebony and Jet magazines. I avoided conversations about sex and any hints of impropriety. I never hung back with the crowd and was constantly seeking the spotlight. I preferred to dance with girls who danced with flair I could hold my own on the dance floor. By walking home one night from the dance at the Glenarm Branch YMCA, I was exulting in my prowess proving once again that girls are plentiful and available if a man was willing to put himself out. Art Hiddenry and Sylvester Winston suggested we take another route home as we were being followed. I felt safe walking down 26th Avenue, which was a main thoroughfare and better lit than the side streets I wasn't aware that another group of three to five were directly behind us until I felt somebody shove me. I turned around and Russell was on the ground. Sylvester was being chased down the street. From my perspective, discretion was the better part of valor. I took off post haste, not stopping until the only sound I heard was the sounds of my feet hitting the pavement and the heavy beating of my heart. I was out of breath when I arrived at the Henry's who got in the car and drove me back to the spot where I had last seen their son, Russell. The street was deserted. He could be dead lying in some alley, said Mrs. Henry. Well, we'll just drive up and down every alley until we find him, Mr. Henry counseled and puffed on his pipe. They took me home, all the while complaining that I didn't stay to help Russell. Despite my attempts to see Russell the following day, It took a while before he and Sylvester and I got together to compare notes on that evening. Everything was vague. I started getting messages from the track team that the coach wanted to see me. I had to give up my sense of freedom. I didn't have problems when I was out alone, but the camaraderie of the group forced me into an uncomfortable position when we were out together. The group liked to hang around a club after closing and mill around in the crowd. I preferred to go straight home. Russell drove his parents Kaiser and chobertus around so I remained with the group despite my better judgment. House parties, church socials, prom nights, all had an aspect of impending doom about them. I gave up on the nightlife and got more involved in church activities, getting elected president of the Teenage Club. I focused on building up a membership and sponsoring a basketball team which competed in the Church League. Then Governor Love was invited to speak at one of our annual programs, a brilliant political success. Mrs. Ruby Kirk, Celestine Peterson, Dorothy Neal, and Harold Parker were our adult sponsors. Mrs. Kirk worked as a secretary in the governor's office. Two years in a row, I attended the AME Youth Convention in Casper, Wyoming. Rachel Noel and Jerome Rose were our Sunday school teachers. The second year, Mr. Rose advised me not to attend the convention because he felt that somebody else should have an opportunity. I couldn't accept his rationale and went anyway because I had won the Shorter Church Oratory Contest. I was on the program to compete in Casper. I gave up my paper delivery route with Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News and took a job at Publix Cab where I watched their 120 cab daily for two years when Publix Cab went out of business due to a merger with Yellow Cab. During this, my senior year at East High, I collected unemployment compensation until it ran out. Grandma Jackson gave me my first car, a Chrysler Windsor. Past coming out party, signal the fact that she was of dating age and ad- announced her entry into society. This was the first occasion of asking and receiving permission to drive the family car for appearance sake. The party was held at the downtown YWCA. We double dated with Sarah Fuller, a member of the Escalite drill team and Melvin Phillips, her escort. Not only I ha- had I been invited as a guest, I was selected to be her escort. A year passed before I could return Pat's invitation. As a member of the student council at East High, I was on the prom committee. I asked Pat to be my date to attend the sweetheart dance. Since Pat attended Cathedral High School, I kept my choice a secret. One can imagine that I was not endeared to the girls at East. I was simply asserting my male prerogative. Earlier, I created a scandal by posing in the hallway was Sanja Fisher, the new girl in town. Joanne Reed, an upperclassman, told me that I was acting mannish. I had girlfriends with no serious love interest until Pat came along. We made it official in Casper Wyoming when I asked her to go study while we were attending an AME youth convention. Lucy Frank Gunther, Pat's grandmother, was recruited to be our chaperone when I visited Pat at home. We enjoyed each other's company and had fun roller skating at Mammoth Gardens Roller Rink. On Saturday afternoon, we were regulars on television's Denver's very own Denver Bandstand hosted by Leo Peepers at Channel 9's former studio on Vanock Street. I had come full circle and Nat King Cole appeared on the show. My mother was my age when she attended a concert of the King Cole Trio featuring Nat at Mammoth Gardens. He was photographed with the audience and Janice Adair, my mother, was sitting beside him with her eyes closed. 16 years later, he autographed the photograph for me and seemed to enjoy remembering that phase of his career. After Sunday school and church, we attended teas where Pat played accordion or sang. Together, we sang a duet from the opera Don Giovanni. We both sang in the chancel choir. If we didn't go to a movie or a concert, we could be found sitting on her parents' porch swing, planning our futures. Sometimes Mrs. Gunther would sit with us on the swing or Clayton, Pat's younger brother, would be sent to spy on us. Sometimes he would startle us by sneaking up and letting out a blood curdling scream. Nothing really bothered us, but we learned to be clever, avoiding detection in more passionate moments. Parlor games and word games like Monopoly were family favorites. Over time, we had developed a repertoire of stock characters, gestures, which speeded up the game. I especially enjoyed Mrs. Adams' stark impression of the greatest story ever told, outstretched arms and an adoring look. I proposed marriage to Pat at the Normandy French restaurant. Afterwards, we attended a gathering of friends and family at Aunt Susie's house, Reverend Susie Rose Whitman. Pat's acceptance of my proposal was a prelude to the fact that I had to ask her father's permission to marry his daughter. Mrs. Adams dramatized the moment by exiting the room misty-eyed, followed by Pat, who gave me a reassuring smile that everything was going to be all right. Mr. Adams got choked up but asserted himself by asking my intentions and how I proposed to take care of his daughter etc after we had our talk mr adams called the rest of the family back into the living room mrs adams said if you ever get tired of her don't beat her up just bring her back home to us because we love her such was the temptation that prompted me to take her home again and again The news was not received so warmly in my household. I had another year to finish college. I was under age 20 and my mother had to sign for me to marry. She signed because this was what I wanted and which I was willing to pay any price to obtain. Kisses and wishes but no clear sense of my possibilities. I now realized that the cause of my tears later was the loss of my possibilities. What I could have and ought to have. Nat King Cole sang, they try to tell us we're too young, too young to really be in love. They say that love's a word, a word we've only heard and can't begin to know the meaning of. And yet we're not too young to know. This love will last till years may go. And then someday they may recall we were not too young at all. I was a senior majoring in international relations when I married Pat. This was my fourth year in Boulder. Pat was a junior majoring in education, specializing in French and Spanish language. She transferred to CU from Colorado State College in Greeley. This fact alone explains the reason there might have been problems in the marriage. Ultimately, we sought professional counseling to deal with the issues that were plaguing us. Blame it on our youth and inexperience we were able to manage financially. We were were, were both on full scholarships. Furthermore, I supplemented our income by working in the student union, first as a dishwasher, then as a cook. We were full-time students. My term as president of the NAACP had expired and I was still bitter about the experience. I dropped my membership in the organization. I avoided the university's little theater which had been a cause célèbre the pre- previous semester when I went public with allegations that the theater discriminated against Blacks, which they denied. Pat pledged Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority and danced with Orcasus, the modern dance organization. We befriended other married students living in our complex. Tom and Judy Day had given birth to a beautiful daughter, but rather than cementing their relationship, it seemed to drive them further apart. They quarreled constantly about whose family was the richest. Tom was a student and Catholic. Judy was a housewife and Jewish. The following summer, I attended summer school to earn enough credits to graduate. I was eight hours short of the requirement. Tom and I worked together on a road crew. Our supervisor had instructed us to routinely ignore parked cars and work around them. Tom took an attitude toward a black couple who were attending school from out of state. Evidently, he thought that these blacks shouldn't be driving such an expensive make of car. He cornered them despite my objections and asked them to move their car. They gladly obliged and went back into their apartment. I called Tom a bigot and we exchanged a few blows. The incident was brought to the attention of the supervisor who fired Tom. I talked to Judy about it and she told me that they were getting a divorce. Tom left Judy and the baby. Pat and I moved back to Denver and took a well-deserved vacation with her parents to Los Angeles. I helped Clayton and Mr. Adams drive, stopping en route in Las Vegas to gamble. All the way, Mrs. Adams worried about running out of gas or getting stranded in the desert. The worst thing that happened was vapor lock. We stayed with Dr. and Mrs. Perrantz Pat's sisters-in-laws. Denver attorney Irving Andrews and his wife were also visiting. Mr. Andrews promised me a job when I got back to Denver, and he delivered on his promise. I was hired to service voting machines at the Denver Election Commission. Pat and I decided to throw caution into the wind. She checked the birth control pills. I worked at the commission with Shelly Rim, musician and band leader, who also wrote a history of Denver in the 60s. After the election, my job ran out. Patricia was pregnant. I interviewed for another job at a private company. My prospective employer wanted to meet my wife as a way of evaluating my prospects with the firm. Pat made a favorable impression, and I was hired as the office manager of a wholesale distributorship of kitchen supplies. During Pat's seventh month of pregnancy, my boss told me that he was going to do me a favor by firing me. He said that one day I would thank him for it. He said that my first love was theater. Pat and I were members of the Eden theatrical workshop. We gave up our apartment and moved in with relatives. Pat went to live with her parents and I moved into grandma's basement. One day I drove grandma to the grocery store and noticed protesters who were asking shoppers not to cross the picket line. I brought the the matter to grandma's attention. She wouldn't let me stop her, so I waited in the car while she went into the store. I think her conscience got the better of her because she left the store without buying anything. Uh, Patricia's prenatal care physician was Dr. Noel, who practiced at General Rose Hospital. Yet owing to our financial straits, Penn was born at Denver General. Pat had to be satisfied with the staff doctor. I sat at her bedside during labor and timed her contractions. I lost track of time the closer she got to delivery and called a nurse. Immediately, Pat was wheeled into a delivery room where I witnessed the miracle of birth. Hours later, we were in our apartment with our treasure, the joy of a lifetime. I wouldn't let Pat carry the baby because I was afraid she might fall. What makes you think I'm gonna fall now? I've been carrying him for nine months without falling, she responded. We laughed and talked and made over the baby. Our hearts were light and gay, as we showed him up to friends and family who could always be relied on for advice. Perhaps it is the nature of men to be all thumbs as we contemplate the wonder of it all. Finally, I allowed Pat to be the mother she had always wanted to be, and I surrendered to my role as husband and father. Ken was a normal, healthy baby boy. who was an endless delight. I relished every moment I could spend with him and I ached whenever I considered what life would have been without him. We're at the brink of a new frontier and the nation was ripe for revolution. Storm clouds appeared on the horizon. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. shared his dream with America at the March on Washington. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. With all the publicity about King Super's founder, Lloyd King, who vowed to never hire blacks, I applied for a job. King Supers capitulated and hired me after the pressure of economic boycotts and court rulings. I was one of the first Black people to work there, and I enjoyed the public contact Contact as a grocery checker. Penn Michael Springs was born June fifteenth, 1963. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A garden locked, a fountain sealed. Song of Solomon 412. As Frank reiterates on any number of occasions, if I knew then what I know now, yet if prior to life we had been able to imagine life, but mad, impossible, unutterably weird, wonderful nonsense, it might have appeared. During our courtship, Pat and I read the Bible, seeking and finding St. Paul, who was our mentor and guide to the sacred mysteries. On August 31st, 1961, we were wed in a beautiful ceremony in the Adams garden which was specially decorated for the occasion. Reverend E.B. Childress presided. He was our pastor at Shorter. We wept as we stood in the receiving line. Surely it was an omen when I broke down in sobs. My brothers shook my hand firmly as if to say that I was a man now. One of my aunts gave me her handkerchief to wipe, wipe away the tears. I regained my composure and looked at Patricia she was radiant, she gave me a tentative smile. A cloudburst forced everyone into the Adams bungalow. We cut the wedding cake and toasted with champagne. 300 guests milled around arriving and departing as space warranted. We seized the opportunity to make our departure. Pat changed into her trousseau and we scurried away amidst a hail of rice and cheering. The caravan escorted us through downtown Denver and honked their horns all the way to the Boulder city limits. Just married was emblazoned on my 51 Kleister Windsor. Pat and I were in a state of connubial bliss. We said goodbye to our friends who then headed back to Denver. We drove until we found a motel in Estes Park. Days before the wedding, I had a conversation with grandma who asked me if I had any pajamas. I told her that I didn't wear pajamas, a practice I adopted in college. She said that she wouldn't let a naked man get in the bed with her. She went out and bought me a pair of pajamas. We were happy as we drove away from the motel. As soon as we noticed the snickers of the college students who work at the motel, pointing at the just married sign in the car, we headed straight to a car wash. Our itinerary included Grand Lake and Steamboat Springs, where a wind deposited the first snow of the season, suggesting Salt Lake City, Utah, as a more desirable destination. After a leisurely drive, we checked into the Motel, Utah, because they had a swimming pool. We met David Nelson and his new bride. We remember David from the Ozzie and Harriet show. We dined in the dining room of the Hotel, Utah, across the street from the Mormon Tabernacle. The following night, we moved to the Pilot Motel where we consummated our marriage. Pat and I celebrated by floating in the Great Salt Lake. We told, returning to Boulder, Colorado, we moved into our apartment on Athens Court and signed up for classes. When I got back to the apartment, I found Pat in tears. Her father, Mr. Adams, brought her a bushel of apples for pies and canning. Pat said that every apple she picked up had a worm in it she shrieked and threw them away i didn't really know what to make of it but i comforted her pat surprised me with a pot roast dinner she had prepared i loved pat with all of my heart and she loved me the future stretched before us like a radiant garment of days for the soul to wear in the world to come <laughs> Grandma died in 1967 while I was still a student commuting to Boulder. Pat and I were contemplating divorce. I ached with regret at the turn of events. President Kennedy was shot by an assassin's bullet a few months after Dr. King's historic speech. By grandma's standards, Pat and I had an extravagant lifestyle, and she jokingly referred to us as the Kennedys. I couldn't bear to see grandma in a nursing home she said I want all of my children to come around me as she lay in her sick bed I ran crying from the room someone told me that she wanted to kiss us all goodbye I couldn't go back into her room I returned the next day and mama and Nina outside her room they told me that grandma had died at half an hour before I arrived I entered her room and she was lying there still warm and beautiful peaceful and serene I regretted not going to her when she asked. I regretted not being able to talk to her one last time. Later I was to regret my unreasonable behavior at her wake. Grandma didn't allow alcohol or cigarettes in her home. We buried grandma in February and I gave notice of King Supers in March. Therapy was a bust and my marriage was past reckoning. My understudy assumed my role as Walter Lee Younger and raisin of the sun and I joined the Peace March to San Francisco. During the ride, I heard talk about hippies and hate Ashbury. I kept my own counsel and announced that the Hipters coined a new phrase. As for the latter, a reference to dirty politics. The bus stopped in Sacramento, where I washed up with the rest at the YMCA. I changed clothes for the final leg of the trip, wearing a powdered blue raincoat and matching hat. I felt sorry for the impoverished people on the march, but they were quite friendly and even offered me holy jeans and love beads, which I graciously declined. This was my first trip out of Colorado. In arriving in San Francisco, I lost the Denver delegation while I was looking for a place to store my duffel bag. United Airlines let me leave it at their ticket office on Powell Street, even though I wasn't traveling with them and frankly, they had no facility for storage. Thousands of marchers passed down Market Street and still no sight of anyone from Denver. A wild cheer went up when the Black Panther Party passed. I decided to march with them. I half expected to see Lauren Watson, the leader of the Black Panthers in Denver, who had traveled to San Francisco on the same bus. At Keysar Stadium, I spied Judy Collins, who sang, this land is your land, this land is my land. We reminisced about high school. She heard my speech when I won the Woodbury Medal. She couldn't believe that I was the quiet person who sat next to her in the concert choir. Coretta Scott King spoke, but the applause went to Eldridge Cleaver, who convinced me that Black Power was the new order. After the speeches and the frenzy, I called my cousin Otto, who lives in Berkeley and works as a mechanic for United Airlines. He gave me a tour of the city and took me to his home I spent a week with his family. I was eager to be on my own, so I took a room in a cheap hotel in San Francisco. I was fascinated by the ambiance and took notes on the conversations I heard through the thin walls. I interviewed with United, but I was disappointed with their offer. Two agents questioned me at once about my qualifications for the position. The final phase of the interview took place at San Francisco International. The supervisor of the ramp crew asked if I could read and write, do figures, or have any problems with rainy weather. Actually, San Francisco is moderate compared to Denver's four seasons and I refused the job. The next day I walked into the Pan Am office at Stockton and, and Maiden Lane. I filled out an application and was tested. I was hired on the spot and introduced to the people I would be working with. My knowledge of French was a plus since Pan Am was an international carrier. I was happy to see a few Black people working in their office. A week later, I was flying to New York for training on Pan Am's reservations computer in the Pan Am building. I had an overnight layover in Denver, and I went to see Pat and Penn. No one was home. So I took a nap and didn't wake up until 5 the next morning. I waited until daybreak to phone Pat at the Adams House She told me that she would come home in a couple of hours when Penn woke up. I visited my mother. She told me that a man from the airlines came to the house looking for me. Imagine my surprise. I started to ponder this information when the doorbell rang. I answered it and heard my mother say, that's him. He was a process server. Pat was asking for divorce and a restraining order to prevent me from contacting her or going to the apartment. I hired an attorney. My parents took me to the airport to connect with my flight to New York. At JFK, I took a helicopter to the top of the Pan Am building where I met another Denverite, Bobby Holloman, who worked in the lounge. The Pan Am building sits atop Grand Central Station where I met Alvin Black, another Denverite, as I got off the elevator. I hailed a, a taxi to the Summit Hotel where I had reservations. I called Actorphone, an answering service for actors, and left, left, left a message for Glenn Johnson, also from Denver. A letter from San Francisco was waiting for me at the front desk. It was a note from my office manager offering suggestions of plays that I might like to attend as he had noticed that I listed theater among my hobbies. I went to see Fortune in Men's Eyes with an, uh, an attorney. I met at a club across from Central Park. She offered to write me letters of in, introduction when I returned to San Francisco. Lar pour lar, which became in England art for art's sake. Art for art's sake meant art that did not tell a story. It meant art with no moral to preach, no religious faith to inspire, no social message, no commitment, no reason to exist except to be beautiful. Allison Adrivan, 1975. I completed Panamac training and started working in reservations at Pan Am's Union Square office. I brought a sack lunch lunch to work. One afternoon, I met Frank Anderson, who also brought his lunch to the park. Frank subscribed to Women's Wear daily, and we spent hours discussing the beautiful people featured in those pages. Frank swore by the icons of fashion and style. I was coming up for some time off during the Christmas holidays, so Frank and I decided to take our vacations together. We planned a trip to the Caribbean with Haiti as our main destination. I had read The Comedians by Graham Greene and concluded it was mere propaganda. I decided to see for myself what life in a black republic is like. Our arrival in Port-au-Prince was marred by a report from our stewardess that a Pan Am jet had been shot at the day before. I was nervous as we went through customs, not understanding the patois. I felt that I had bought into the stereotype unconsciously. At ten in the evening, we rightly decided to take a hotel nearer to town instead of the palatial mansion we had reserved at Cap Haitien, a day's journey. We checked into the a deluxe hotel in Patientville, a middle-class suburb of the capital, on a high hill overlooking the city. As soon as we had secured our residence, we took a taxi back to the city. We were eyes and ears. We encountered a couple of white American students who were quite blasé. Frank was encouraged by their presence and went native. I couldn't keep up with him. We found a bar and ordered rum and coke. We declined the service of some prostitutes, drank up, and headed back into the crowded streets. Blind along the boulevard were vendors with their wares spread out on the street. Candles flickered in the tropical night, lighting the way to the celebration of independence. President for life, Papa Doc, sped past with his entourage, flinging coins to the happy children. Frank ran after him, searching the ground for coins of souvenirs. I freaked. Tales of Papa Doc's private army, the Tom Tom Makut, were not wasted on me. Billboards announced those who opposed me opposed the country papa doc his picture festooned the street strung on string overhead i considered a skillful move to get one unobserved but every time i thought about it a platoon of motorcycle led tom tom macut would appear out of nowhere i left without my prize after a good night's sleep i was a new person i suddenly remembered where i was and rushed to the veranda to catch the view it looked so good I could taste it a veritable paradise yet at second glance, there was a slum directly below and children had noticed my presence they shouted at me and I managed to speak to them in a form of sign they pretended to make a game of it and I played along with them from patty cake to patch your pockets I did and they laughed you have money they shouted and held out their hands you got me I had to admit the truth They heard the coins jingling in my pockets when I played patch your pockets. They fought over the few coins I was able to dig up and I walked back inside the room. A native guide found us at the marketplace and offered to bargain with the merchants so they wouldn't try to cheat us. We accepted his generous offer. He kept us company during our stay and actually arranged transportation to the country where we witnessed cockfights. That day was my best memory of Haiti because I met people who I consider people and not a bunch of criminals spawned by the wretched conditions of an urban slum. Frank took pictures of the presidential palace. One snapshot after another revealed a dynamic situation engendered by our presence and our cameras. Before we realized what was happening, we were assailed on all sides by an army of young people. Our savior appeared in the midst of the confusion warning us to get away he commanded to leave them to leave us alone and reinforced his order with a belt for the undisciplined he chased them back across the street and never returned frank and i ran past our guide who had waited at, at a distance during the picture taking he apologized for the discourtesy of the youth explaining that they were papa doc's self-appointed palace guards Voodoo is widely practiced in Haiti, and picture taking is considered bad magic. We hastened to the hotel, dismissing our guide. Independence Day is celebrated on the 1st of January in Haiti. We ate breakfast at a first-class restaurant frequented by tourists and the mulatto elite. Our waiter assured us that we were on the parade route. Hours passed and we continued to wait. We drank rum and coke and summoned the waiter again. In question, he simply said that the parade had already passed, evidently by another route. He directed directed us to the sports stadium where Papadoc was scheduled to speak. The stadium was overflowing with humanity and we took seats on the black back bleachers. Whether we were witnessing a demagogue haranguing his people or some other stereotype of third world nations, I didn't know. We were lucky to have seen anything at all considering our ill-fated fiasco at the restaurant. I couldn't exactly get a feel for the crowd. The response was varied and diverse. We got a brief respite from the third world when we met Lavinia Williams and her family. Lavinia is the prima ballerina of Haiti, replacing famed choreographer and dancer Catherine Denham, who we were told is persona non grata as a result of a conflict with Papa Doc. I speak in the present tense, even though this all happened long ago, 1967. Catherine Dunham is still respected internationally and awarded all the respect that is due to a dance legend. I never heard from Lavinia after we left Haiti. Revolution has plagued that nation for a long time. One of these days, I pray we'll get it right. I've worked for Pan Am for three years and then I left Pan Am to work for the newspaper, San Francisco Examiner. One day I didn't show up for work because I had dropped orange sunshine acid the previous night. Pat Martine who worked the National Airlines counter called me at home. She was an optimist and read my horoscope. I was still tripping. I sat on the floor next to my roommate's shoes. They gave me a sense of security. I was hallucinating. His shoes grew to the size of the Giants and Jack and the Beanstalk. He walked into the living room where I sat and I noticed that he was wearing another pair of shoes. I panicked and begged him not to go to work. I told him that I had dropped a tab of LSD. Andrew went in no parts of my trip and left, Pat called back and offered to come and be with me. She took the rest of the day off. We went to Golden Gate Park and she showed me where to look amid the garbage and the flowers, my Suzanne. I applied for a position on the San Francisco Examiner and was accepted. I completed a course at City College with high praise. Mary Crawford, who who had won a Pulitzer Prize for her interview with Charles Carroll Chessman, predicted to my class that one day I would be their city editor. I went on to extend the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University in New York City, sponsored by the Ford Foundation and the San Francisco Examiner. On July 29, 1967, President Lyndon B. Johnson appointed a special commission of distinguished Americans under Governor Otto Kerner of Illinois to search for the roots of the rising militancy in our country and the widening gap between white and Negro Americans. After seven months of painstaking investigation for the causes and remedies for the smoldering violence in America today, the battle was joined. The only genuine long-range solution for what has happened lies in an atta- attack mounted at every level upon the conditions that breed despair and violence. All of us know what those conditions are. Ignorance, discrimination, slums, poverty, disease, not enough jobs. We should attack these conditions not because we are frightened by conflict, but because we are fired by conscience. We should attack them because there is simply no other way to achieve a decent and orderly society in America." Lyndon Bain Johnson addressed to the nation July 27, 1967. That's the report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders. I count my interview with Ralph Nader and Thor Heyerdahl among the blessings of my craft as a journalist. Tony Brown castigated me publicly at a seminar for minority students When I proposed building coalitions throughout the third world based on a policy of inclusion, Mr. Brown suggested that I was an Uncle Tom because I didn't expect his blacks only thesis. I still believe that progress is impossible unless people come together as illustrated by the history of invention. People groups stagnate in isolation. Harlem was not accepted as an equal partner at the bargaining table of justice. Justice denied was the verdict in the white man's court yesterday and today. All major cities studied by the Kerner Commission have been resegregating, said the new report titled, Cities Losing Race with Time. Due to be sent to President Clinton, credit, housing, and job discrimination on the basis of race have gained new footing. Infant mortality, unemployment, and poverty have increased and life expectancy has decreased among the black population since the 1968 report, according to the new report written by Fred Harris and Roger Wilkins. In the new report, they found the unemployment rate for blacks today is twice that for for whites. Black males earn less than three quarters what their white counterparts earn on average. The median income for black families is 57% of that for white families. The average net worth of black families is only 20% of that of white families. The poverty rate for blacks is nearly three times that for whites. Sweetheart, I'm going to tell you a story about a group of people and you see how they relate to you. Once upon a time, there was a group of people who were enslaved by another group of people who thought they were superior. This enslaved group of people came from a race of people of ancient civilization and culture and were rich in gold and kings. Here, this group of people were of African heritage, and they were taken from their home shores and brought to a strange land. When this happened, they were no longer classified as a race of royalty accustomed to the title of kings, queens, princes, and princesses. They were classified as animals, niggers, and in the final episode of cruelty were treated and used as slaves. This group of people were raped of their culture and their gods and were forced to acquaint themselves with the new God, the God of the people who had enslaved them into captivity. At night, this group of people would pray to this new God and ask him to deliver them from their bondage, just as he had delivered his chosen people, the Israelites. They would pray, go down Moses, way down into Egypt land, tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. Pat died about three years ago in September, and Penn has now lived in, he lives here in Colorado with his 19-year-old son. And I see him often, he he works downtown, you know, less than a mile from my house. Uh, To the 18-year-old version of Orville, I would have to go back to the 17-year-old version of Orville. I wrote The Invalid. I sit in the shadows from sunlight to dusk. I go to the window and stare, this was at CU. I see a gay day and the birds on their way, the fallen leaves tossed without care. I too was a young child at play, curiously seeking for fun, but my life was cut short and without a retort. I assumed the lonely life of one, but I won't begrudge the tumbleweeds way nor scorn the gay play of the youth but I'll reconcile that I was a child, sooner than most come to truth. And this was another poem written at that time called the Ode to Nonconformity. Why do you worry what people think about what you say and do? Is it a weak constitution for the fear of man's cursed boo? Is a man still a man when he joins with the rest? Or is in the Aeneid women beating their breast, Afraid of the fate of life's uncertainty, and seemingly afraid of the chance to be free, I pity those men whom, by custom, are fettered, attached to a rock, and the chains of a coward, victims of indulgence by weakness, overpowered. So analyze briefly my thoughts just a bit, and make your decision to be a non-conformist. <laughs>
0: And so it is. Thank you for listening to Black and Gold. The Black and Gold Project, our past, our present, our future, is a production of the Black and Gold Project Foundation. You can reach out to us at olderblackandgold@gmail.com, at gmail.com and also on our Facebook page, The Black and Gold Project. Until the next time, remember that we are all
1: black and golden. I love you.